Good morning. Thanks for having me here again. Uh, the plan is, um, I won't be here next week. I think um, Pastor Mike will speak next week, and then um, I'll join you for the baptism service, um, but I'll be as much observing <laughs> as much as participating. I'm kind of interested to see that service unfold, uh, and then I'll be here through Christmas after that. So again, thank you for the privilege of being here. I wanted to pick up where I left off last week, if that's okay, and go back to the topic of humility, as defined by Paul in this morning, look at the example of Jesus that he gave us. So if we could, and I think Derek has it on, or is going to have it on the screen, yep, Romans chapter 12 in the New Living Translation. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take that and find your way to Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to read the first five verses again. That'll be our baseline. And then I'll refer to some other scriptures as I um, try to share what my reflections are on this for Jesus. So Romans chapter 12 from verse 1 in the New Living Translation says this. So I'll read and then uh, we'll pray. <clears throat> and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, to give your bodies, or give your lives, as we looked at last week, to give your lives to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So he's talking about transformation, Paul is, in light of the mercies of God, in light of salvation that we have come into, how do we pursue transformation so that we look and live like Jesus? And that's what he's saying. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world. That's verse 2. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, so here's step one in this transformation. I give each of you this warning. Don't think that you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. But circling back to verse 3, which is the key, I'll read it again like we read it last week. Uh, where did I put that? I didn't write it down, so I have different notes this week. Sorry. We talked about the fact that let um, don't think more highly, reject. Let's, let me just put it this way. Be prepared to reject the view of myself that is naturally formed in self-interest and inflated above what is real, and instead pursue a view of myself that is formed in faith, spiritually, in light of the truth God reveals. So that's what I want to look at this morning, but I thought we could stop there. Let's pray. Uh, perhaps we could pray for our nation after a curious week that we've been through. So let's bow our heads and pray, please. Father, thank you for the privilege of opening your word. 
And it seems, Lord, that no matter where we open it or what we're going through, your word has the power to meet us where we are and to speak. So regardless of all of our various preparations coming in this morning, my prayer is that each of us would hear from you because this word that is living speaks to us right where we are. Father, as a nation, we pray for your healing. I was thinking as we were singing this morning, your faithfulness is great. The, the writer of Lamentations reminded us that every morning your mercies are new. They are fresh to meet the needs of the day. And your faithfulness is beyond our understanding. You are unchanging and unchangeable. And while governments may come and go, and rulers and leaders may change, you don't. And so our hope doesn't rest in leaders and leadership and government structure, although we submit as we see them ordained by you. But Lord, our hope is in you, in you alone. So be our unchanging Lord and God as we move forward. As a nation, may it be that we find ourselves in repentance and confession and renewed alignment with what you're doing. Father, as a church, and this admittedly isn't my home church, but as a church for Shelby, our prayer is similarly that we would learn to follow you. We would see uh, new ways opened in the days ahead and that we would have the courage and the strength to follow you. And as individuals, Lord, our prayer is that you would speak to us today Father, may everything that we look at be proper representation of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it please you that we look at his life. Spirit, would you please speak, not in a way that draws any attention to anyone else other than our Lord. And draw our eyes there so that we could be watchful and we could be observant and actually find ourselves transformed as we look at who Jesus is. So I ask that today for Jesus' sake. Amen. So last week we talked about the concept that Paul has described here in Romans chapter 12, about this idea of transformation. And if we are followers of Jesus Christ, and if we are reflecting on the mercies of God that he has gone to great length to describe for us in the first chapters of Romans, then what is our response? What's reasonable in response to everything that God has done for us? And the reasonable response that Paul describes is that we offer our lives in sacrifice to God, that we actually give ourselves, not just our time, not just our money, not just a few uh, things that we can give, but all of us, we give ourselves. And then how do we do that? Because that's obviously a different way of living than we would normally live, we live unto ourselves and by ourselves and by our own ambitions and by our, for our own goals, naturally. So there's a transformation that has to take place, and Paul talks about that. Don't be like the rest of the world who doesn't know the Lord or doesn't understand the mercies of God. Be transformed. Change the way you think. And step one is that we find uh, this concept of humility before God and with each other as a place to be transformed. So, that said, let me just try to frame this up a little bit. Um, I, when I was, I don't know how old I was actually, maybe 10. I might be confusing figures though, but I bought my first and only horse I ever owned for $30. $30. 
Now, if you saw her, you might have thought, I would have only paid 25. I don't know. No, but she was a great little pony. She was 10 hands high, which again, when I was young, like that was, I was doing this with my hand, but now I'm doing more like this. Anyway, 10 hands high, a little Appaloosa pony, too small to be uh, classified as a pony of America, as an Appaloosa, but 10 hands high. Uh, so small, actually, that my older brother, when he climbed on top of her back, felt like he could lock his feet underneath. Like he just wrapped it right around. <clears throat> but for me, I was small growing up, I was, and I was young, so I was perfect size. So I loved her. Uh, I mean, she was a great horse. And my older brothers had two horses, and they had named them Indian names, so I followed suit and changed her name from Penny. I bought her as Penny and uh, changed her name to Cherry, Cherokee. Anyway, I thought she was awesome. And we went on rides all the time, and she was the perfect size, but mostly because she was just so low to the ground. You know, you just didn't have far to fall, which was nice for me. But my neighbors across the way, sort of caddy corner across the street, had two horses. One looked like my oldest brother's horse. It was like a, a bay with, you know, black mane and brown uh, fur, hair, sorry. I get into these things, and I'm using terms that are bizarre. But anyway, they also had an Appaloosa. But this thing was a monster. It was 18 hands high. It had one eye gouged out, and it just had a mean look about it. And also had an Indian name. They named him Pawnee. And that horse was scary to me, like frighteningly scary. And not just because of the, it was missing an eye and it just looked mean and it just sort of had a weird temperament, but it was super tall. And I sat on that horse once and I thought to myself, never again, because you're so far up, I felt unstable. I felt like there's no way I need to be down low to the ground because if I fall, like, it's not going to go well. And you think about things like, I had a 10-speed growing up, and my parents must have known that, okay, we need to get him low to the ground, right? Low to the ground. So the 10-speed's like this tall, and every once in a while, I tried to get on my brother's 10-speed, which was super high, and it was so tippy, and I could barely ride it, and I felt like I was going to fall at any time. And this, so early in my experience, I sort of learned that low center of gravity is better, whether it's a bike or a horse. I mean, they teach this also in sports, especially football, linemen. They teach low center of gravity, right, or tackling or running back. Low center of gravity is always best. Get low, get down. You're going to be most stable when you're down. Because when you get high up, you get a little tippy. Not tipsy, tippy. But pursuing humility is in so many ways something along that line in that principle, if you think about it. Because when I am allowing myself to just naturally go along with my own sort of bent towards self-interest, or I'm going along and I, have, I allow a naturally inflated view of myself to grow and to, to prosper and to take root, and I become inflated above what's real, that becomes inherently a very unstable position. I'm constantly under threat to be tipped over, to be challenged, and to be, to be knocked. But the concept of humility is that if I bring myself low, it's like getting on the, the small 10-speed, like getting on the small Appaloosa. You get low to the ground, you get greater stability, and you're far more likely to be able to navigate life following the will of God in alignment with God and with others because 
it's just an inherent stability that's there. So, humility is truly transformative. We all know what this is like. If we, if we have any kind of relationship with people around us, we know that some people, now we're all competitive. Whether we admit it or not, we are all competitive. I know a few of you are like, no, I'm not. No, you are. Because <laughs> we all are. That's what human beings are. We, we measure ourselves by others. That's what we do. That's the inherent definition of competitiveness. Um, and let me just say, like in this culture around here with football, enough said. <laughs> we are competitive. But the transformation that God is looking for is for us to be able to neutralize comp competition in a way that allows us to navigate what God is trying to show us and to navigate relationships with other people. Because if we're always in competition with others, it creates problems. So, humility is transformative because it allows me to reject a view of myself that is naturally formed in my own self-interest and inflated above what is real, and instead pursue a spiritual perspective of myself that's formed in faith in the light of God's truth. And so, in that, I naturally lower myself, or not naturally, I deliberately, voluntarily lower myself before God, and I lower myself with others, and it allows me to live at a lower center of gravity with greater stability and allows me to flourish in ways I wouldn't otherwise. And so I say all that because I want to look at Jesus and how he exemplified that. So let me just stop there for a moment, though, and ask this. If you think about this, this sort of dichotomy or this, this it's an either or, it's sort of a binary type of choice. I'm either going to just do life on my own terms. I'm going to just allow myself to, to, to be formed in my own perspective and, and to, to take on a view of myself that is naturally formed and is prone to self-interest and prone to inflation or, or I'm going to reject that. And I'm going to pursue a view of myself that's formed in faith based on what God has said. Not just God has said broadly, but what God has said about me and to me. You can't have both. Now, we live going back and forth, and that's the reality. But that's what life is all about, is realizing, okay, I've trended over here. Stop, stop the press, reject that, come back over here and renew this, right? And we drift back over and we have to keep renewing. But the bottom line is we never live in both. You can't have both. And Jesus didn't have both. But my question is, what or has God spoken to you about who you are? Have you ever had that kind of sense or season in your life where you felt like God was actually showing you what he thinks of you, how he has wired you, how he has prepared you, and what he intends for you. It's, I think it's a legit question. And I think it is something that I think inherently for all of us, it is what we desire. That we hear from God. That we understand how God sees us. So I want to look at the life of Jesus just in two, two quick ways. And 
Uh, Derek, I didn't give you these. I didn't give you these, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses here to talk about an example in the life of Jesus. Okay, so John chapter 13 is one. In John chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples preparing for the last Passover, and uh, these are the early moments of that, that period of night where he was with his disciples for several hours prior to being arrested and crucified. And so this is one of those powerful passages, but it just sort of, I don't want to get into all the details of the passage, I just want to look at what Jesus was doing sort of on a big scale here. But in John 13, it says this, when the Passover, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. So right there, that's in a, a reference to the fact that Jesus understood his identity from the Father. Okay, right there, it says it. But he said he had loved his disciples, uh, he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and he had come from God and would return to God. So much identity in there. He got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. That's just one of those images that is so powerful in Scripture of Jesus Lowering himself before others, lowering himself before God, taking a low place and serving so that God could do what God needed to do. So there's that. And then in Luke, I just want to read this briefly. In Luke chapter 22, it says this, and then we'll, we'll jump on this. We'll get into this. In Luke 22, this is later in that evening, and in verse 26, Jesus says, or the writer says this, they, meaning the disciples, began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest. Hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's an odd setting here. So they began arguing among themselves about who would be the greatest. And Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lorded over the people, and yet they are called friends of the people. But among you... In my kingdom, part of the transformation of God among you, it will be different. Those who are greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. And then later, he goes into the garden, and the famous prayer that he offered says this, Father, if it is possible, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Let your will be done, not mine. Those, to me, are just snippets of the example of Jesus Christ. So I just want to try to frame this a little bit in terms of what, what was really going on. Jesus found himself at the, uh, the culmination of his ministry on earth. The evening before his arrest. A very pivotal moment because in this evening... It's, things are going to go one way or the other. He is either going to continue surrendering himself to the plan and the purpose of God, or he is going to turn and preserve his own reputation. Why do I say that? Well, if you think about it, I don't want to use any words really that just unnerve people, but... 
If you think about the life of Jesus, it, it frames up in a very interesting way. Jesus was born without a human father, right? In the eyes of the world, or the, the nation that he was born into, that's illegitimate. No, I, the story, yeah, the story of Mary being visited by an angel. The story of God, you know, causing Mary to become pregnant with child. Okay, the story was that, but come on, come on. That had never happened. I mean, that's outrageous. I mean, if someone came with a story like that today, we would laugh. We would say, oh my word, like where did they come up with that? We all know how this came about. And so Jesus began his life before he ever stepped into this world and breathed his first breath at birth. He was already labeled as an illegitimate child. And that dogged him all his life. He was considered a pretender. The religious leaders called Jesus a pretender. Why? Because he had no formal study. It's kind of like saying that someone who wants to be, you know, in a position like a doctor, but they never went to school. They never had any official training. No one knows if they know what they're going to do when they get into the surgery room or when they visit a patient. Like, how are you supposed to know? So Jesus arrived on the scene and he had no credentials to be a teacher. And that dogged him. People were constantly after him to say, who is he? You have no business listening to this man. He has no training. He has no credential, no authority. Yet, how often did we see Jesus speak? And people said, this is so bizarre. Like, he actually speaks with authority. Like, when he speaks, we feel like we're hearing the words of God versus the religious leaders who have all the credentials and don't seem to say anything other than, what the generation before said. He was called a carouser. What is that? Well, Jesus made a point in his life over the course of his ministry to befriend sinners. And that's the big tag, right? Sinners. All of the people that the religious leaders would have nothing to do with because they were so far off in sin, so, so heathen, so, so pagan, so whatever in their practice, they were just so far gone in their sin and in their vile practices that the religious leaders would have nothing to do with them. But Jesus was their friend. And so they looked at Jesus and said, like, there's nothing about you that's appealing as a religious leader because literally you're hanging out with the scum. He was considered a rebel because he didn't teach what all the other teachers were teaching. And it wasn't like he went about it in some sort of secretive way and said, you know, on the side, let me just show you how this goes. He said, I mean, how often he said, you have heard it said, and he would quote some sort of tradition, but I tell you this. And he was constantly putting two things in front of people and saying, you've heard this, but I'm telling you this. And they said, like, what is going on? This guy's a rebel. He's trying to dismantle the whole system. And so he had all this happening. They even called him a deceiver, someone who was lying and intentionally leading people away. And now, so you have all that going on. He's an illegitimate son. 
He has no credentials. He has no recognition from religious authorities. He's teaching things that are directly opposite what is being taught at large in general. And frankly, they saw it as someone who was leading people away from God. So he was labeled a deceiver. And so now he's got all those accusations going throughout his life. And here he is contemplating the, the experience of going to a Roman court, going to a Jewish kangaroo court first, being falsely accused, being betrayed, being sentenced by a Roman court, and being nailed to a cross. And what would that say? What would that say about Jesus in terms of who he really was? Well, from a public perspective, that would be, see, it was all true. See, he was illegitimate. See, he was a deceiver. See, he was a rebel. See, he was a carouser. See, he wasn't part of God's plan. He wasn't a teacher for God. And God has brought it all back to judgment now because he's hanging on a cross like the criminal that he is. That's... That's what Jesus is facing. But what did Jesus know? See, sometimes this idea of pursuing humility has to do with putting a pin in our own inflated view of ourselves because that just kind of grows and grows and grows and inflates over time. We have to keep putting a pin in it. And sometimes the issue of humility comes up because there's such a barrage of false accusation against us that we feel naturally inclined to turn and refute it, right? Sometimes we feel something rise up in us when we are being seen illegitimately. Now I'm using that word a little bit differently, but seeing, being seen falsely, and we want to speak against it and say, no, that's wrong. I'm not that. I, I, I didn't do... I. Both of those are protecting in what? Our own reputation. But what did Jesus know about himself? Well, Jesus knew that before he was ever born, it was said that his name would be Jehovah the Savior, Jesus. That was what the angel told Matthew. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So before Jesus was ever born, he understood that the name he would hold on this earth in his ministry would speak to the purpose of why he was here. Then he was born... And on that night, it was announced that today, to you, is born in the city of David, what? A Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then you look at his early years, and you only get a little bit of a glimpse, but we find that as he was growing, it said he grew in favor with God and with men. And what does that mean? It's not just sort of a blanket statement about his life. It means he was growing in his relationship with God, even in the early years, and a relationship with other people, and he was gaining favor. So all, the, the identity was building in his life. And you, you come all the way to the time that he was announced at baptism. And what did God say? The heavens were pulled apart at his baptism. And God said, you are my son. And in you, I am well pleased. And that wasn't just a statement over the first 30 or so years of his life. It was an identification for him that not only affirmed what had been, but launched him into the ministry ahead. He was commissioned for this 
we find in the New Testament. He spoke at times with the Pharisees about his relationship with his father. In John chapter 5, he talked to the people and he said, you know what? My father is working. He's always at his work. And I too am working. And we work together. And he shows me all that he's doing. And you have this kind of unfolding relationship of the father. So it's, it's all just building as an example for us that it is possible. It's not just possible. I think it's what we desire. That in our lives, like Jesus, we might actually come to know how God sees us, who he says we are, and what he has for us to do. And that was true of Jesus. And so it was revealed to others. Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus was like, yes, you're seeing it. Yes. My father revealed that to you, but my father's already shown me that. And then he has that just like powerful statement with Pilate right before he was sent off to be scourged. And he says, for this reason I was born and for this cause I came into the world to testify to the truth. Like Jesus understood exactly who he was, and why he was here, and what it was that God wanted him to do. And that was, so you have this kind of, this is what people are saying, this is what the public perception is, but this is what my father has said. So which one am I going to go for? So the choice was that Jesus could turn in his own strength to defend his reputation or he could yield himself to who he knew he truly was, follow God, and let God do what God would do in terms of... So this is the echo, right, of First Peter and James. Humble yourselves before God, and in his time he will what? Lift you up. So that's why you have Jesus saying in the, in the garden, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Father, I'm good. I'm not listening to this. I'm not paying attention to this. All this noise over here, I'm good. I know who I am. I know why I'm here. I'm going to do this. First Peter talks about this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, when people were coming at him, he didn't return. So he didn't retaliate. He didn't, he didn't draw into that play of people coming against with false accusation and turning and saying, no, that's not. He didn't bother with that. Because he knew who he was. And in Hebrews it says that he is the founder and perfecter of our, of our faith because for the joy that was set before him, he knew what was coming. He knew what was going to be secured. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. He possessed a clarity and a security and a confidence in who he is and how God saw him that allowed him to stay aligned with God even in the face of a destroyed reputation in the eyes of other people. And the result is that he has secured for us eternal redemption. The result has been that while he made himself so low and took the form of a servant and was humbled even unto death, that God has given him a name that is above every name, and a place that's above every place. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will confess and bow one day. So, I look at that, and I think, I want to live like that. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Naturally, in my mind, I just shuddered because I don't want crucifixion. <laughs> Mm-mm. Don't want that. But I want to be able to live in such a way that no matter what people are saying about me, it's not causing me to be derailed. I want to live in such a way that no matter what people might be thinking about me, I'm not tending to turn and try to, to control that. I want to live in such a way that I've come to understand what God has said about me. About who, who he has made me, how he sees me. Because it allows me to live from a low center of gravity as I bow myself before him and let, let him inform me. It allows me to stay aligned with what he wants in my life. It allows me to stay in relationship with other people without competition. And allows me to not be derailed by the noise in my life. And by the concern over my own reputation. In the end, he trusted his father in the heavens completely. No matter what others might believe or say about him, no matter what he might suffer, he committed himself to the one who judges justly. That to me is one of the most powerful examples that I find in terms of how to deal with adversity in my life is when he was reviled, when people came at him with false accusations, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he didn't respond, but instead entrusted himself to God, knowing that God would bring to light all that is right. And he did. And he did. So, What's happening in your life? First of all, do you find yourself longing for God to show you who you are? And this happens, like, I'm longing for that. Okay, I'm 54 years old. Shouldn't I already know that? Shouldn't I already be convinced of that? Shouldn't I already be living the dream, right, of knowing exactly what God wants of me? Shouldn't I? No, I still long for that because it's, it's an ever-unfolding process, right? I've learned, and I want to keep learning. But, but do you have that kind of desire in your life to know how does God see me? And again, it starts with a broad brush in terms of salvation. Like, do I know Jesus as Savior? Do I know God's love for me? Have I experienced God pouring out his love over me? And have I been converted to follow Jesus? Okay, that's a broad brush. But beyond that, that's just being born into the family. Do you have a desire to know what the Heavenly Father says about you? as a son, as a daughter, as one of the family, about why you're here, what he is asking you to do. Secondly, what would you do different in your life if you did know what God had said about you? So if you think about it, is where are you in life, and is there a sense in which you feel like, I think God's asking me to do that, but if I did that, or if I followed, I'm not sure what others would think. Or, 
I'm not sure that that makes sense because I feel like I'm past that. You know, I've had these kind of moments like, hmm, should I do that? I don't know. I think maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I shouldn't, you know, worry about, I feel like God's like, put a pin in that. But where do I find myself in life? And am I at a situation where I feel like God wants me to do something or be a part of something or move towards someone or whatever it may be? But if I do, gosh, it, people just aren't going to understand. Could be a situation like, I don't know if you play, like I was thinking about like high school sports. We were talking about some of that on the way over here, just about some of the dynamics of the, some of the families we know, including our own kids. But uh, do you ever find it difficult to, to think, like, why doesn't my kid play more? Like, my kid's better than that. My kid should be playing. My kid should be starting. My kid should be, like, why are they wasting their time? They, they're better than this. They're... Or, you know, if my kid chose that instead of this, this is, everybody in school seems to be going after, you know, sports, but my kid is artistic, right? And so if, if, if my kid doesn't want to do sports, like, people are going to think he's an idiot. No? Come on. We have situations in life, sometimes it's at work. Well, if I, you know do this, then, you know, the rest of my coworkers, are, they're not going to understand why I'm doing that. So the question always is, and it comes up so many situations, how do I make decisions in my life? How do I make the next step? And is my next step going to be based on the fact that I know who God says I am, I feel like he's calling me to do something, he's opened up a path, and he's asking me to take that step, and I'm going to do it because I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to worry about my own reputation, I'm not going to worry about what others think. Humility allows me to navigate that. Because humility says, you know what, I'm not going to accept what I think of myself, and I'm not going to worry about what others think of me. Instead, I'm going to pursue a spiritual understanding of who I am before God based on who he is, how he has shown me that. And that's how I'm going to live. And Jesus showed us that. Jesus showed us that in spades. And so, to me, his example connects because... I find in that a tremendous liberty to live my life according to God's will. And it sounds like ridiculous to say, like, oh, I know what God's will is. I'm just saying, it allows me to at least pursue it. It allows me to at least be ready for it. And thank God for Jesus, who, by his own example, showed us what it is to live in that kind of freedom, in that kind of power, and in that kind of purpose. And that's the kind of life I want. So I don't know where God finds you today. I don't know if... I don't know if this message resonated directly with you this morning, but for me, it was so critical to understand I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, so I need to see in Him what He's calling me to live like. I need to see that. And so Paul says, look, you need to reject this view of yourself that's naturally inflated, and you need to pursue identity in God alone. Okay, so how do I know what that looks like? Well, Jesus just showed me. So the next time we come back to this, the last thing I want to do is look at 
just what are some practical ways that in my life I'm learning to dismantle, to, to actually, what does it look like to turn away from and actually structure my life so I don't have to worry about my own reputation? What does that look like? And again, Jesus will show us through his teaching. But for now, uh, I'd like to close in prayer. And I want to remind everybody, though, that um, I think Jerry's going to be at the back, right? With, yeah, for this family. Um, and I, I guess I'll encourage us all, I encourage myself in this, that um, as a nation, uh, we need to pray. Because no matter where you find yourself in the results of the election, this is a seemingly divided country, and this country needs to move forward together. So let me just pray and ask.